Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So in our ongoing vaccine rollout coverage, I think the podcast today and we do have a special guest, is a 100% vaccinated group. Presuming, of course, that our audio engineers had his vaccine. But Tammy, you got yours. I got the first of two. So I would say I am 50% vaccinated. Or you're actually 80 after two weeks, believe it or not. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, you already have superhuman powers and didn't even know it. <laughs> I'm just so excited. I'm so excited, not only because I actually got this shot, but I'm so excited because so many people I know are starting to get shots. Yes. I got the call a few weeks ago and I was very confused because I got it. I felt like I'm a young, vibrant person with no pre-existing conditions. Why am I lucky enough to get called up? And I looked in line to the people in front of behind me. I realized there were, one guy was wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. Another guy was like playing Settlers of Catan on his phone. And I realized, I think they're just vaccinating 30-something nerds. Uh, <laughs> somehow they fit that demographic. Uh, which I am solidly in the bell curve of. So, Did you say he was playing Settlers of Catan on his phone? Oh, indeed, indeed. So I think it was Settlers of Catan. It may have been, you know, Seafarers, one of the variants. There were some unique moves happening I'm not familiar with. Oh, but my God. Making the most of that line time. You have just found the vaccine Venn diagram. <laughs> I got a shot today, and I have not yet keeled over in side effects. So I'm in that period between vaccination and collapse of elation. <laughs> Give it time. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the longest war is ending edition. Maybe. I feel like I should put a parenthesis around that is ending. I don't know. I feel like we've been here before. Maybe it's the is the longest war ending edition. Yeah, yeah, but you can't do questions and headlines. Uh, I guess, well, I guess we can do in episodes, though. It's a little different. Shane, we can do anything we want. Oh, yeah, you're right. This is the internet. And we're back. Screw all of you. (laughs) We can do anything. (laughs) I'm just going to defy every journalistic convention there is. I had my jab. (laughs) Screw it. Oh, my God. I am here in the virtual jungle studio again with my good friends, Benjamin Winnis, Tamarkov Winnis, and our great friend Scott Anderson from Lawfare, who is joining us this week. Hi, everybody. Hello. Susan is wearing a Scott Anderson costume today. <laughs> right. um, I, I did almost put on my Susan Hennessy wig, which I have him back and I can pull out if need nice. be. Nice. Your Susan Hennessy travel wig. I like that. Exactly. Very good. Scott, our, our, we were just discussing this before the show. Our virtual studios are very close to each other. We didn't even know we were neighbors. I know. It's very exciting. The pandemic will eventually allow us to see one another from, you know, <laughs> more than just our stoops. It'll be good. But fully vaccinated feels pretty good. I have not had any side effects, just FYI. I have my second shot of Moderna in 10 days, and people are telling me, be prepared. But I don't know. I'm liking my chances. 
I think the second shot of Moderna is a character test, and we will see oh, how, how how you fare, Shane. I will take 24 hours of feeling really crappy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Getting immunized in a heartbeat. Plus, just like, like take a couple of shots of whiskey and just go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, whatever. I can do whatever I want. I'm vaccinated. Or, or take a few shots of whiskey and don't go to sleep. <laughs> Either one. Stay up and play the, the phone game. That Scott was talking that about. <laughs> that's that's the one. That's the one. On the podcast this week, President Biden announces that all U.S. military forces will be out of Afghanistan by September 11th. A blackout at an Iranian nuclear facility is widely attributed to Israeli sabotage, complicating negotiations over a new nuclear deal. And we finally know the company that helped the FBI hack a notorious shooter's phone. And it's not Israeli. And it's not Israeli. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, didn't we all know this was an Israeli company? Well, I think for the longest time, everyone was like, oh, it's widely known. It's an Israeli company. But no. No, no, no. We're going to get to who it was. It's a very, very cool story. Um, but let us start with, um, this was a busy news week. Whoever said the Biden administration was boring? Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> times are, are heating up. Big, big news this week. President Biden, perhaps while we're recording this, is going to announce that the U.S. will withdraw all troops from Afghanistan by September 11th which will be the 20th anniversary, of course, of the terrorist attacks that drew America into its longest war, which has killed more than 2,000 service members and cost trillions of dollars. According to prepared remarks, the president will say, quote, we cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create the ideal conditions for our withdrawal, expecting a different result. I am now the fourth American president to preside over an American troop presence in Afghanistan, two Republican, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility to a fifth. Tammy, as the president noted, other presidents have presided over this war. They have been either unwilling or perhaps unable to withdraw our troops, although I think that is a goal that they probably all shared. Why has Biden decided to be the one to finally do it? And why does he think he can succeed? Yeah. Um, so this is this is a decision that I don't think should surprise anyone, although it does seem to have surprised people. And I think it goes back actually to something that we talked about on the podcast just a few weeks ago, which is the way Biden thinks about American foreign policy in the face of renewed geopolitical competition and climate change and a global pandemic and the challenges of our domestic politics and society and economy, which is that if the United States is to remain the predominant power in the world, it must husband its resources and shore up the sources of its strength. And this 20-year-long commitment in Afghanistan is sapping those resources. And so if we don't think that we can actually achieve something lasting that we haven't already achieved, it's time to cut our losses and go. That is, you know, with respect to Afghanistan, not necessarily a new analysis, but with respect to how it fits into American foreign policy, it's a very new analysis for American presidencies and American national security thinking. And I think it's an ex another example of the way in which people really shouldn't underestimate this sort of foreign policy is domestic policy, domestic policy is foreign policy attitude of the Biden administration. It's really meaningful. That's point one. 
you know, and having decided that, He's not, you know, trying to cultivate uh, support. He knows that this has the support of the American public. And so he's just ripping the Band-Aid off and doing it. Now, what is going to come along with that is a lot of political nicks and cuts between now and September, because the Taliban will want to make the United States withdraw under fire. Other adversaries of the United States will seek to exploit that and perhaps cultivate their own uh, ways of demonstrating American weakness and withdrawal under fire. Uh, The president's political enemies are going to make hay out of this, and it's going to be ugly and messy. And we will just have to hope that the Afghan government survives after we leave. So, you know, there's a willingness to pay that political price that I think is laudable as a form of political courage. But I think that there's something else going on here, which is that both Biden and those who support his policy and some of those who oppose his his choice withdraw are kind of caricaturing what's actually going on here. The proponents are saying Biden's serious about ending endless wars. He's not ending the war in Afghanistan. He's ending American involvement in the war in Afghanistan. And that's a point that, you know, many have made already, or even to be more precise, he is ending this phase of American direct military involvement in the war in Afghanistan, because we, you know, were engaged in covert action in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and we may well be again. And, you know, if he, if Biden's learned anything from the, the, Iraq withdrawal that he oversaw in 2011, he will not be doing what what the U.S. did there, which is withdrawing not only the military, but diplomatic engagement and economic support. And so we will still be engaged in Afghanistan in those ways, I hope. And then there's the question of if this is, in fact, a benefit for conserving American national security resources, what national security risks come along with it? The withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, handled in the way it was handled, I think is not unrelated to the rise of ISIS and the return of American combat troops to Iraq in 2014. I wrote about that in the Atlantic years and years ago. You know, how can the Biden administration ensure that it doesn't face the same situation in Afghanistan as Obama did in Iraq? And I think if I were a Biden national security policymaker right now, that would be the biggest question on my mind. Scott. Yeah. You know, I, I come at this issue from a little bit of a unique perspective because uh, a little less than nine years ago, uh, I landed in Baghdad, Iraq, just a few months after the last big major U.S. withdrawal and really spent the subsequent year and a half more than that, really kind of living through some of the aftermath of what at the time was incredibly chaotic to many degrees, unexpected up to about six to eight weeks out, large scale military withdrawal of, it should be noted, a much larger military presence uh, in Iraq than we have in Afghanistan currently. And I think that's one point that there should be more agreement on, which is that rushing to meet the May 1st deadline by the Trump administration, I think was going to be a problem. Part of that was because the Trump administration, other than 
trimming the actual military presence, hadn't taken major steps towards pursuing this withdrawal. There's still very, very large contractor presence in Afghanistan. Um, you have NATO allies and their own contractor tail there in substantial numbers. Not quite at the level of Iraq, but in some ways, exiting is more complicated for Afghanistan than Iraq because of just this geopolitical positioning. And you really need to do it well to maintain the sorts of capabilities that you want out of a diplomatic presence after the fact. Because you have spent years with your military operators building up relationships, building up presences on the ground, sometimes just physical resources, equipment, personnel, contractors, local hires, all of which are integral to the kind of collective U.S. mission. And that because of, frankly, the funding structures and the kind of unique role the military plays in U.S. foreign policy and U.S. politics and the unique role the United States plays in Afghanistan and its relationship with NATO there, you've seen a lot of other elements of the Afghanistan policy picture riding along with the military and coming to rely on it. And so you need to have a transition that really takes that into account in terms of finding ways to take the local hires you need, put them on the State Department payroll, ensuring that you have supply lines coming into the country so that what is likely to be a plussed up diplomatic presence in many ways can feed its people, feed its contractors, have security, have people providing security. And these are really hard, hard questions. I think they're in a better position in Afghanistan um, to do it well than they were in Iraq with this extended timeline, a much better position. Trying to do it by May 1st would have been a real struggle. And frankly, it's pretty irresponsible in my view for the Trump administration to set that as the deadline and put that sort of onus on what they knew could well be a new president, albeit one from the other party if, if President Trump were to lose. The one point I'll note is that I think Tammy's right that hopefully we will see uh, an expanded or at least continued, if not expanded, engagement with Afghanistan on a variety of economic and development related fronts and political engagement. But there is a real trade off there. When you have a increasingly insecure situation, one part of what you have to do is ensure you, so you have a security resources that can both protect and then if need evacuate whatever U.S. diplomatic presence you have in country if things do go badly on an appropriate time frame. And that's its real constraints on the number of personnel you can have in country and the types of activities they can do and where they can go. And so in some ways, you are really putting yourself in a more difficult position, even diplomatically, because simply in a country where we don't have a major U.S. military presence, you don't have access to different parts of the country the same way, and you don't have the resources there to address a security emergency if it were to arise. Ben. I just want to say that I think this is a terrible idea, and I don't support a withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think that uh, the president is setting up a, a set of bad outcomes. And there's a reason why four previous presidents, three of whom are sane, or th three previous, two of which are two of whom are sane, did not withdraw all US forces from Afghanistan. And that is because there is very little basis for confidence that the lid can be kept on the Taliban without some U.S. presence there. And just as uh, the Taliban grew out of prior power vacuums and, the, and ISIS grew out of the power vacuum created by U.S. Uh, withdrawal, I fear very much that uh, without some U.S. presence, and the U.S. presence is not all that large at this point. It's not a huge number of troops. There will be very little that will prevent the Taliban from resurging more than it has already been able to do. And that would be catastrophic 
and it would not be containable within the borders of Afghanistan. I'm not Lindsey Graham about this. I'm not saying we should fight them over there so that we don't have to fight them over here. But I am saying that if you don't, if you don't believe that the Afghan government is capable of of keeping them at bay on its own, and you don't believe a peace deal is probable or would be honored if it were signed, the U.S. commitment there is a relatively small price to pay for keeping the Taliban out of power and out of the business of projecting force elsewhere in the world. And I think we're going to have a pretty substantial body count for this decision. And it is going to be one that will be looked back on with a certain degree of uh, tired and fatalistic skepticism. I will say one other thing about it, which is that, you know, more than half of the population of Afghanistan is female and they will be the first victims of this decision. Tammy. Yeah. So, I mean, on Ben's last sentence, of course, he's right about that. And and that takes me to what I wanted to say, which is no one should understand this U.S. policy decision as we've done what we went there to do. You know, we've done our jobs. We're going home. This is a defeat <laughs> in terms of the objectives set for the United States and the NATO mission in Afghanistan, which were to create a stable government that was more just and and would last. That's very unlikely. This is going to be much more like the withdrawal from Vietnam where, you know, we we walk away because we're no longer willing to pay the price and the Vietnamese are the ones who paid the price. The Afghans are going to pay the price. And a lot of the um, more thoughtful commentary is focused on what the United States is both morally obligated and politically and strategically wise to do to mitigate that inevitable price. But I don't think acknowledging that cost is the same thing as saying, therefore, we must stay. That's precisely the hard decision that Biden made. And you can agree or disagree with his choice about costs and benefits without arguing that he's ignoring the costs. Yeah. The one thing I, I would add to that is, I, you know, I think Tammy really hit on that point that is not getting enough conversation really needs to be a part of what we discuss, which is the moral obligation point. Uh, as Ben, I think, discussed correctly, like there's going to be costs to Afghans, many Afghans who relied upon the United States deeply over the last 20 years and could face a great deal of suffering. And the United States needs to have a plan to address that. I'm hoping President Biden uh, addresses that or begins to lay the framework for some sort of plan to do that. We had a plan after the Vietnam War. We brought in lots of Vietnamese refugees into the United States. Uh, and I think there's a very strong case to be made that similar plans may to be put in place here, at least in anticipation of the worst case scenario. But we'll see if domestic politics allows that to be a possibility. Well, while we're on the subject of super simple foreign policy challenges, <laughs> let's talk about Iran. Some news this week out of Iran. The New York Times broke a story earlier this week about a mysterious blackout at the Natanz facility, which, of course, is the uranium, one of the uranium enrichment facilities that has been so much the subject of ongoing concerns about Iran's quest and efforts to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, this blackout was widely attributed to Israel. Not clear if it was some sort of physical sabotage or a cyber attack. Iran announced uh, in response that it will begin increasing uranium enrichment to 60% 
purity, which is a kind of a key step that observers look for to say, all right, is Iran back on track uh, to building a nuclear device? Uh, it was interesting. This, the, they made this announcement hours before the national, or sorry, the director of national intelligence released its annual threat assessment, uh, in which they said Iran was not yet taking the key steps they needed to build a nuclear weapon, but sixty percent purity and enrichment would be one of them. Uh, <laughs> interesting there, timing. There even an addendum to that. Yeah, point. it's like yeah, exactly. It's like, can we pull that report back real quick? Um, it was actually kind of funny because we had early copies of it and we're reading this being like, ha I guess Iran had other plans for you. Scott, the Biden administration is engaging in indirect talks with Iran. They met recently in Vienna, uh, kind of using intermediaries with the goal of reentering the nuclear agreement that was forged in the Obama administration. And of course, President Trump pulled the United States out of. So give us a sense of how these events this week complicate that effort and those negotiations. Sure. I mean, I think that if we assume this act is properly attributed to the state of Israel, which I think is the most logical assumption at this point, and we've seen uh, leaks from a variety of sources in the media indicating that that's the case, then it fits into a broader trend we've seen, which is the Israeli government and security forces really pushing the agenda against Iran on a variety of fronts. This comes after a number of pretty high profile and risky maritime incidents where we've seen Israeli soldiers disabling Iranian ships and taking other actions to stop efforts that are bringing supplies to Iranian proxy forces in the region. Um, of course, is coming off of years of Israeli military action or strongly suspected Israeli military action uh, in many cases in Syria against Iranian affiliated targets there. And this is another big ratcheting up of this. Uh, we saw a similar incident last summer, uh, I think around July last year, uh, that similarly set back uh, the same Natanz facility uh, and an Iranian uh, weapons production there, a similar even method of attack. The Jerusalem Post, at least, has reported both were actually physical explosives smuggled into the facility and then detonated remotely, although who knows if that's true or not. But you know, it, it really underscores uh, the fact that there is this war that's being heated up I think fairly consciously on the part of Israel with Iran. And what's the strategic motivation of that? It's two good reasons they can do it because they have kind of a win-win scenario here a little bit. In one case, if the United States is going to plow ahead with Iran to enter into the JCPOA, no matter what, and they're able to get there and Iran is willing, wants to enter that agreement, Israel has a moment here where Iran is going to be restrained in the degree to which it can respond uh, for fear of derailing that instrument. And then Israel will be able to step in and can actually make little victories, victories that might matter a little bit tactically, perhaps they matter a little bit more domestically. Um, if nothing else, they can do some serious messaging to Israel and other problematic countries in the region. And they give an angle by which you can take advantage of that window of opportunity uh, where Iran may not feel as open to being able to respond. Uh, the alternative approach is Iran does feel the pressure to respond. Different elements do ratchet up and that that does put increased pressure on the United States, both to potentially derail the JCPOA negotiations or perhaps even more likely feel pressure to begin pulling in these other issues that were always deliberately siloed outside of the JCPOA negotiations, which are narrowly focused on nuclear issues, did not previously address uh, a variety of other Iranian machinations in the region, particularly related to regional stability, but that we're seeing domestic pressure and even bipartisan domestic pressure building up to push the Biden administration to pull those into these talks. There's a major bipartisan letters, including uh, Senator Menendez, Chairman of SFRC, Ben Cardin, some other senators, Democratic senators, among other many Republicans, just in the last few days on that, pushing that sort of agenda. Um, so it, it's kind of win-win. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of advantage here if you are a risk taker. 
weaker. Um, the risk of all this, of course, is it spirals out into a conflict with Iran. <laughs> but that is a risk that the, the Netanyahu government in Israel has been willing to take for the last few years. And I think they're doing it in a calculated enough ma manner where they actually don't think that's very realistic. And I suspect that's right. I think one of the really interesting questions is what is the real relationship between the United States and Israel around these attacks? Um, because, you know, if you think about the dynamic in the Obama administration, and David Sanger wrote about this at length in his book, Confront and Conceal, you know, Obama wanted diplomacy with Iran and thought that Israeli covert actions and a potential Israeli preemptive strike were um, contradictory to his objective. And so he was simultaneously concerned with how to get into a, a fruitful negotiation with Iran and how to constrain Israel. Um, and I don't know that the same thing is necessarily going on here. I, I mean, it's hard to tell. But what you're not seeing is you're not seeing American officials backgrounding the media saying, oh, this is really dangerous and there's a risk of escalation. You just you're not seeing any grumbling about it in, on the Washington side at all. And you're seeing the Israelis be much more open about their involvement than they were in the last go round. And, you know, it strikes me that this is a way to create urgency for the Iranians you know, that the U.S. is hands off about, but it gets to reap the benefits of. And the Biden administration gets the benefits of looking like, you know, it's tacitly supporting this very tough approach from Israel. So it gets a little political space from its critics at home and in the region, but it's not actually doing any of it itself. Now, none of that is to wipe away the risk of escalation, which, as Scott noted, is, you know, significant and, and a real concern. But I, I think there's quite a bit of benefit for the Biden administration. And I and it makes me wonder whether there isn't just a little bit of kind of wink, wink, nod, nod going on here. Can I ask before we get to Ben, just a quick interjection on that, Tammy? It's so fascinating. And so the, I guess one question I have is this many of the same players that were running Obama administration policy in Iran are running Obama administration are running Biden administration policy. So why are they behaving differently? Is it a matter of just it's who's at the top of the chain now? No, I, I don't think it's necessarily about personalities. I think it is about a recognition that 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 dynamic between the Obama administration and Israel got quite poisonous, partly because the Israeli political leadership under Netanyahu chose to wield it in a partisan manner in Washington, but they don't want to give the Israelis incentive to do that. Israel's in the midst of a very delicate domestic political situation anyway, so they don't want to get their mud on their feet around that. And mostly, I think they understand that in order to have the space they need to negotiate with Iran, they need Israel and their Arab partners to give them that space. And so they have to choose their battles with these guys really carefully. I note also the Biden administration approved the UAE massive arms package today. You know, they need the space these guys can get. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, ben. A couple of observations about this. First of all, one of the differences is that the Biden administration is in a much stronger position vis-a-vis Iran than the Obama administration was. And the reason is... First of all, that whatever one thinks of the dismantling of the JCPOA, uh, the renewal of sanctions uh, by the Trump administration has created a kind of crisis situation in Iran economically and in a bunch of other ways. The second is that the Israelis over the last several years have shown increasingly openly that they can hit the Iranian nuclear program at will. And this has taken the form of, you know, very open operations against Iranian nuclear scientists, including at the very highest level, and apparently the ability in a kind of badass sort of way to smuggle explosives into the power facility that, you know, Natanz is using. The New York Times reported the other day that it would take up to three to six months to restore power to the facility. So, I mean, they really did a number on that. And I I think the sort of degree to which the Israelis have shown that they can, you know, access and uh, interfere with and the degree of penetration of the Iranian nuclear program is another factor. And then the third factor, which I think is, is an important one, is that they're the so-called Abraham Accords, which have brought the secret or all but open cooperation of the Israelis and the Gulf countries into the very open. And one of the members of the Promise podcast, which we uh, often refer to and on the show, actually recorded the Promise podcast from Dubai the other day. You know, like, like that's a, and, and, um, and that's a, you know, and that's the Israeli left, right? And so there is a degree to which there's a kind of open now, you know, anti-Iran alliance of Israel and Gulf Arab countries. And between those three factors, I think, you know, the United States is walking into these negotiations with Iran with a very commanding set of cards to play. And when the Israelis do something like this, it more strengthens than weakens the United States' hand, which was not the case when we were trying to coax the Iranians into, into negotiations and the Israelis would, you know, would off somebody or, or, or do something or some sort of cyber attack. Not, you know, here you have a situation where, you know, all of the various factors are feeding the fact that Iran is in a very, very bad situation. And their only real way out of it, whatever their rhetoric, is to do business with the United States. Scott. 
So I I don't agree with I don't disagree with that, but I don't agree with it entirely. I think it understates perhaps some of the complications that can arise for the Biden administration from some of these Israeli actions. And it may be a matter of scale or duration. Uh, you know, these were pretty significant actions, but again, I think they're constrained, they're calibrated not to push Iran probably kind of over the threshold um, to escalation. But the move to the 60% threshold that Iran announced in response to this attack is pretty notable on a, a number of different fronts. If nothing else, it's a clear and pretty substantial ratcheting up of Iranian activity in violation of the JCPOA and kind of narrowing narrowing the timeline and reigning in the timeline that the Biden administration has, I think, to say, all right, we need to keep pursuing this and selling this as a means of reigning in the nuclear program. Even if we maybe want to aspire to pull in some other issues as well, it's still primarily a nuclear-related agreement. And so Iran does have that remaining bit of leverage. Now, it's somewhat limited. I agree they're in a much weaker position. But they also have you know, the, the other concern that they've been toying with, which is that they haven't really been able to engage the U.S. or Western economy very much in the last several years. And the regime, despite the immense pain suffered by Iran domestically, despite the many ways in which it's weakened, might be coming to terms to the fact that that may not be a secure option. And looking and as soon as in their heads, they decide we no longer have a realistic opportunity of engaging the West economically. Um, then the whole economic sanctions regime that's designed to guide their policy begins to collapse in its actual effectiveness. I think it's still a ways off, but I think approaching this as saying this is a inevitably good for the Biden administration. I think it may be overstating it. If these things keep happening at too fast a scale, too rapidly push the Iranians too hard, I think it can actually complicate the Biden administration. So it's a delicate balancing act. And it's hard because the Biden administration, I think, Tammy's totally right, has to keep its hands off of this and cannot look like they're actually coordinating it. That makes it hard to discuss, well, what is actually the right threshold to approach here and risks it, putting in the hands of Israelis that may not seem to have the same assessment of the situation. I'm reminded of this sort of situation constantly about what happened with the Obama administration when they were pursuing this and what was their big giveaway um, to the Gulf states in that case, but unless the anti-Iran coalition, it was the Yemen conflict. And that spun off into a major, major costly conflict and something that really compromised a lot of U.S. interests in a lot of other ways. So, uh, you know, I hesitate to, to think these things don't come with a lot of negative externalities. I think it very well might down the road. All right. For our next story... I'm going to go back down memory lane here to a simpler time. It was 2016. Donald Trump wasn't president. And it was the iPhone 5. And it was the iPhone 5. And we were all very concerned about going dark. Uh, because in a very serious and obviously very tragic event, there was a uh, terrible shooting, which we've become all too accustomed to, people will remember, in 2016 in San Bernardino, California. And we will recall that the shooter in that case um, had an iPhone that the FBI very much wanted to get into to learn if he or his associates uh, were had been planning other attacks, what they could learn about the attack that he had just committed with an accomplice. The only problem was local law enforcement could not easily get into the iPhone. And it was designed in such a way that if you tried to guess the password too many times and you were wrong, it would erase the contents. Thus began this very pitched battle between the Bureau and Apple over whether or not Apple should create or give some kind of access to law enforcement to get onto the phone? Would that be weakening all iPhones and therefore diminishing security for all users across the board just to help this one investigation? Well, fast forward to today, we now have an answer to this, uh, at least one big answer in the puzzle here, which was, what was the company that ultimately stepped in to help the FBI 
hack the phone. We knew at the time that someone had come forward uh, to do this, but we had not known until now. Uh, my colleagues Ellen Nakashima and Reed Albergati report that it was a company called Azimuth Security, which they describe in a story out today in the Post as a publicity-shy company that sells its cyberwares only to democratic governments, that they secretly crafted the solution that the FBI used to gain access to the device. Um, this is a obviously fairly publicity-shy company, not Israeli, it's Australian. And, and not Emirati. And not Emirati, which I know, because now it's just all that, you know, that those two countries have all kinds of shit that can get up on your phone and break it open. But this was a really interesting piece of the mystery. We had known at the time, partly because the FBI withdrew its legal challenges to try and force Apple to comply, that they had found some kind of solution. It came out later, I think, when Senator Collins revealed it, that they were paid nearly a million dollars, this company, uh, for this job. And of course, they found that there was not really much on the phone that was useful for the investigation. But, you know, Ben, this has been such an interesting mystery for a long time. And it puts us back in the mindset of this really big discussion and debate that was happening at the time about tech companies' obligations to assist law enforcement in the conduct of lawful investigations. I'm sure we talked about it on the podcast and Lawfare probably spilled a lot of ink on it. I want to know from you, now that we have an answer to this big mystery, and we're learning, I think, more from this story as well about how the FBI and this company actually work together, how are you thinking about those questions that were looming in the debate now that we know how the FBI got this phone unlocked and who helped them? Has it changed your mind or made you ask new questions? So it's a very interesting question. As as listeners may remember, at the time of the FBI-Apple fight, I was one of a relatively small number of people who said, kind of, what do you expect the FBI to do? And that, you know, that there's there are these vague provisions of U.S. law that require companies to give reasonable assistance, and they're kind of meant to refer to, you know, landlords who might have keys to tenants' apartments when, when confronted with a lawful uh, search warrant. But my view was in the absence of some clear legislative resolution of this question, the Bureau and the Justice Department are going to take, you know, whatever law might support their position and try to use leverage those to get companies like Apple to help them. That was not a popular view at the time, and it has not, you know, become any more popular since. But I do think the resolution of this situation, which kind of followed the course of scholars like Susan Landau, who had been saying, hey, lawful hacking is the right approach. Don't give the FBI the authority to require that FBI, that, that Apple break their phone, but, you know, give them resources to learn how to, to hack phones with warrants. That's something that it is a perfectly reasonable thing for the FBI to do. There was always a question about whether that would scale. Fine. I thought this was a resolution. Mooting out this case by hacking the phone was a great resolution to this issue. 
The problem, of course, is that uh, now Apple is suing the company. Um, and there has to be some outlet, right? If, if Apple is not going to have a backdoor, and I totally understand Apple's and other companies' insistence that they should not be asked to you know, break their own products. There has to be some way. It can't be that the, that the, the rule is that nobody is authorized to help the FBI, right? And the answer, I think, that this story suggests, which is, hey, there are white hat hacker companies that aren't doing business with the Emiratis and the Chinese and that aren't, you know, controlled by Russian organized crime, right, who are helping democratic law enforcement and only democratic law enforcement do the lawful hacking that they sometimes need to do, what, what's the right solution, if not that? And so I do think the story is encouraging, except for the fact that these, you know, that companies like this, you know, seem to be acquiring legal problems of their own. And it does seem, and the story talks about this, it strikes me that the comments that really you know resonated the most are that this was the, the one person said this was the best of all possible outcomes, right? Because the FBI didn't get a legal ruling that said you can do, have to do this all the time. And it was just a one sort of case by case basis. You know, that's a fairly persuasive argument, right? That it could have been a lot worse for all kinds of parties involved. What, what was the better outcome here? So there's no, from Apple's point of view, there's no ruling that they have to help the FBI. There's no judicial interpretation of the relevant provision of law that says, which is admittedly broad and vague, that applies it to this situation. There's no controlling authority that forces Apple to help. Uh, The only thing there is, is a company that with appropriate legal authority is looking for vulnerabilities and using them to help democratic and only democratic law enforcement operations when there is appropriate legal authority for that. That seems to me to be the, like, that seems as close to an optimal, it's not optimal for law enforcement, but for the aggregate society, seems like about as close as you're going to get. Yeah, I mean, I I hear you on that, Ben. And I guess my question is, you know, to the extent that 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 the attraction of that solution relies on the good faith of these private sector white hat hacking companies, then I think, you know, the question is, how much can we rely on them or what could democratic governments who care about the rule of law and privacy rights, what could they put in place to guarantee that companies that identify themselves in that way are actually working according to a set of clear standards? For example, should democratic governments create a public registry of white hat hacking companies You know, otherwise you're going to have actors entering the space pretending to be that and won't be because there's a profit motive. And so, like, I accept what you're saying, but it's not good enough yet because we're just relying on good faith here. 
So that's true too, but the, the, the flip side is that Apple is suing this company for copyright infringement, right? And so- Okay, then you could create a legal regime where you create protections for white ha hackers if you want, so, I suppose. So, 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 but you so, gotta institutionalize so it. So I agree, you've gotta create a situation in which, the, in which companies are incentivized to behave like this one, not like your friends that we've talked about before, the name of which I, I can't remember, the former NSA guys who went to work for, for uh, the Emiratis. For the Emiratis. Yeah. I forget the oh, name. Oh, Project Raven. You mean like NSO Group and Dark Matter, yeah, those group. kinds of companies, yeah. you you got to create an incentive for companies to behave like this, not like that. On the other hand, you've got to, if you're not going to create a legal obligation for Apple to help the FBI, you've got to create a safe zone for these companies to operate. The problem I think that you get to is, so I don't know, I think you would have to have legislation to provide a clear safe zone or this is going to have to work its way through the courts. I guess, I mean, I'm not a copyright expert, but I could see how Apple could have a case given you see how aggressively people use copyright law in a variety of other contexts, right? And you are inherently using the intellectual property of somebody when you are hacking it, taking it, reproducing it, and then adjusting it in certain ways, right? I'm not saying Apple doesn't have a case. I haven't read the complaint. I haven't read the... My, my point isn't that they don't have a case. My point is that the regime can't be Apple doesn't have an obligation to help and nobody else can either. Well, but we don't, I think my point is, I don't think we really know what the regime is right now. You would need to have a legislative fix one way or the other for either option. And the fact that you now have this capacity and maybe there will be a policy buy-in by the U.S. government to say, maybe we should have copyright law or other legal protections for these white hat hackers. I think that really may change the calculus for the tech companies, because I'm not sure the tech companies actually want to have a set of legislation on the books that creates an incentive for this other marketplace that incentivize all these private actors to begin poking at their security systems, develop these capabilities, um, and then provide them legal protections to do so. I think you might see the tech companies begin to change their tune on this a little bit, because it'd be a lot better for them to say, okay, we lost the battle or lost the war. We will accept the fact that we have to do some of this in-house and try and get limits on it, warrant protections, maybe other sorts of legal scrutiny in place as well, or even say, maybe there's something the U.S. government should do internally. I, I think that's less realistic because that would just require so much more resources the government can realistically, I think, muster, although maybe not, uh, who knows. But um, it, it seems like it'd be a hot, tall order. But I, you know, I think this is just the next battle in a bigger war. I don't think the different parties have really come to resolution on this, and it's an interesting twist. Um, although I don't know if it's different from what happened a few years ago. It's just now they know the parties are, and now they'll be able to sue each other, and we'll get more sense <laughs> of the legal terrain. Everybody gets sued. Exactly. You get a lot of suits. And law stays in business for another couple of years. <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. Scott, you're our guest, so you can go first. Well, my object lesson, which I'll hold up to you here because I actually physically hit holding the object, is this. Oh, it is a roll of Charmin Ultra Soft, uh, you know, double ply, extra wide toilet paper roll. It's the good stuff. It's the good stuff. The, I mean, I think it's about as much luxury and comfort as you can squeeze into a five inch diameter cylinder of paper. Um, <laughs> And uh, I'm holding this up because nine, as I mentioned in response to one of earlier countries, about nine years ago, I was in training getting ready to go to uh, post 
withdrawal Iraq. And a actual piece of I, my recollection, this may have gotten a little apocryphal the, over the years. My recollection is a piece of official advice I got uh, from State Department trainers at FSI was among your personal effects, bring several rolls of toilet paper. Because in the wake of the withdrawal, there were massive supply shortages uh, throughout the embassy <laughs> of even the most basic items. MREs were also on the list. And I was told, if I recall correctly, again, it's maybe got a little apocryphal. I was told to bring it because it's great for you. And then if worse comes to worse, you can trade it with your friends, you know, kind of like cigarettes in prison uh, was the <laughs> metaphor that was provided. And I mentioned all this just because uh, today's news, uh, you know, is a big one about Afghanistan. Uh, we're going to have several months, hopefully, to do the transition right. But withdrawals are really, really hard and they affect a lot of people. And we're still going to have a lot of Americans on the ground come September 12th, 2021 in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I know I have friends in the current A100 class getting ready to become foreign service officers, lots of friends of the department still. And a lot of those people, I suspect, may yet end up in Kabul or elsewhere in Afghanistan in the near future. So I would just say pack carefully if you're going in that early period, uh, because it could be really useful. For better or for worse, though, I did not need whatever toilet paper I may have brought. I don't even remember if I brought any by the time I got there. So (laughs) hopefully within a few months, they'll work it out. And that, to be clear, that's not the roll of toilet paper you took to Iraq. I did that one. That one I left behind. It's a, a tribute okay. to my uh, successors. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I will go next with my object. <clears throat> this falls into the category of TV shows that are new to me, but that I'm still going to recommend uh, to our uh, listeners. Do you guys know the show Borgen? Yeah. Which is kind yeah. of like the Danish House of Cards. It's very good. Yeah. So it's super good. We just finished the first season. I will admit it took me a few episodes to be sold on it, but now I'm into it. But Borgen is a story about uh, the prime minister of Denmark, who in this show is the first woman to serve as prime minister. And basically it's it's I mean, it is a kind of classic, you know, high stakes political drama. But the thing that the show does really interestingly, I think, is it also follows like her life at home and trying to be a mom to two kids and trying to be a wife to her husband, who is becoming increasingly resentful that he's had to put his career on hold and take care of the family. I mean, it kind of flips the gender script, which is super interesting, too. But the reason I didn't like it at first, and I have to admit this is just my own biases, is like some of the stakes in this show just seem so incredibly low. Like, it's like, will they be able to pass a budget bill? I'm like, who cares? Like, what are you talking about? Like, they're just like, it's just like, you know, like inter, like, you know, intra party feuding of like, the Greens will never go along with our coalition. I'm like, oh, well, shit. I guess, you know, we're at DEFCON 1. Uh, but like, once you get over that and remind yourself that like, it's got to be a world ending national security threat. Is that what you're saying? Well, like, in the third episode, like, the crisis of the third episode is one caused by the CIA. I'm like, they had to like outsource actual high stakes political drama to like the country that invented it, right? But as it goes on, you get more used to it. You're like, Denmark's cool, man. It's just chill. It's, it's, it, but, and, it, and then you start to believe the stakes in their world. But I really like the family drama aspect pitched against the statecraft drama aspect of it. And they did it in a way that just is really compelling and really thoughtful. The woman who plays um, the prime minister, I may pronounce her, mispronounce her name. Her name is Sidse Babette Knutsen is awesome. She's just so good. And you watch her transform over time because she's sort of like this accidental PM and then she just kind of just like sharpens in so many ways. It's really, really good. So but yeah. Secretary for Denmark. I guess. Yeah. I don't watch that show. I probably should. And I like the actors in it too, but it kind of feels that way. Um, it's good. It's really good. And also you'll recognize it took me a while to be like, why do I know him? But the guy who plays her spin doctor is an actor named um, Pilau Asbeck who was in Game of Thrones. He was one of the uh-huh. Ironborn. 
And you're like, oh. Also, the funny thing about this show is when they speak English, their English is impeccable. Of course. And you're just like, <laughs> I, I have God. had meetings at the Danish parliament uh, where people's English was better than mine. It's incredible. You're like, wow, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Borgen. They're doing it better than all of us. Ben, round us out. So this is going to be a little bit of a yarn, but I promise it's worth it. <laughs> Do it quick. The other day, <laughs> yesterday, or two day, a few days ago, Mike Pompeo tweeted a picture of himself <laughs> playing chess, uh, as he put it in the tweet, as a proponent of freedom, enjoying some Taiwanese dried pineapple checkmate. Now, he does appear to be eating dried pineapple, unshaven in a hoodie. He, yeah, he looks, looks rough. Let's be clear. He looks rough. In his I, kitchen. I do want to say the board, at least that part of which we can see, does not reflect anything close to a checkmate. And so one has to question his knowledge of chess. But alert Twitter user David Williams points out to me that... If you zoom in on the uh, left-hand side of the picture, there is a wooden, it's a book or a wooden tablet. It's like a plank. Yeah. A plank. It's like a plaque. Being yeah. held up, and it is entitled Mercer Family Favorites. Now, the Mercer family, uh, for those who don't remember is Mike Pompeo's mother's family. And I know a little something about Mercer family favorites because once upon a time when he was CIA director, Mike Pompeo sent me a note, a letter on CIA letterhead, chastising me uh, for a FOIA request that I had sent him and including in the letter, the response to the FOIA, the Mercer family fudge recipe, which my then managing editor, Shannon Togawa Mercer, who uh, took a little bit of- An offense, unrelated Mercer. An unrelated Mercer. And by the way, none of these are related to the, the right-wing philanthropist Mercer family, chose to make the fudge, which we called Pompeo Fudge Gate, uh, so we know the fudge lives. It is sitting there in Mike Pompeo's kitchen. The fudge was underrated. I got to say, we, we Shannon made it. It's not great fudge. It is verbatim the same fudge recipe as is on the marshmallow fluff container. But Mike Pompeo continues to propagate the fudge fraud, the fudge <laughs> fake news on the American people, including in this picture celebrating Taiwanese uh, dried, pineapple. dried pineapple. I want to thank uh, David uh, Williams for bringing this really important update to the Pompeo Fudgate story to my attention. Keep an eye on his pictures, people. The fudge, you know, it's important, people. <laughs> it sure is. Oh, so yeah. Maybe he could put the pineapple in the fudge. Maybe that would improve it. Maybe it improved his chess game. Oh, yikes. I mean, a lot of people were, were tweeting this at Gary Kasparov. <laughs> yeah. That's the literacy apparent in the photo. Did, and what did he say? I don't know if Kasparov I don't know responded. If he responded yeah. uh, he's a dignified sort of guy. 
but people were 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 making sure Kasparov knew that there was there were were problems in Pompeo's chess literacy. <laughs> Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with this decor in general, but you know what? I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave it to you to you cast dispersions. In back of the illiterate chess game. And, and we're on it. We're on it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, we'll have to pick that up again next week. But for now, that is the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, Ben's uh, fudge and chess tips at uh, fudgematch.lawfare. Hashtag Pompeo Fudgegate. <laughs> yeah, you're not letting it go, man. No, never. he's not. Never, ever, ever, never. ever. Like, I'm, if, if he runs for president, I'm going to start a pack to promote, <laughs> you know, like, to take ads. It's going to be the swift vote vote of 2024. I mean, this man once, <laughs> as CIA director, wrote a personal letter to me saying, Ben, you should be better than this. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it more of a personal challenge, Ben. Oh, I am like, it will, as long as I am alive, Pompeo Fudgegate will not die. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. We are still up there. You won't find any fudge recipes, though. Whenever you download the podcast, please do be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. And be sure to share the podcast with all of your friends, those who play chess or sailors of, what is it, Catalonia? Settlers of Catan. Shane, this is why you didn't get your vaccine in time. <laughs> That's why they made me wait so damn long. It's exactly. Of Catan. Oh my god! <laughs> and if you want to sponsor <laughs> Rational Security, we're here. We're here. We're, we're we're ready to take your money. However, you would like to give it to us is fine. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week, I think, is by Mike Pompeo, who recorded a very special single just for Ben called Go Fudge Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what happened. And he probably will. He's probably doing it right now, actually, because, you know, he's listening to this and is sitting in his... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his uh, with his very big sweatshirt there. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Crawford Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, will be back this week. But our special guest Scott Anderson, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. And hello to Sophia Yan out there. Stay away from any bad fudge, Sophia. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.